Howdy friends, this is Matt Sewell, and you're listening to episode 79 of the Popecast, the only podcast about popes where you'll find non-boring stories on the successors of St. Peter and a reminder that all the world's problems have happened plenty of times before. A quick thanks to our sponsors over at Catholic Balm Co. They are the finest place you can find for everything from beard balms, beard oils, lotion bars, natural deodorant, and more great smelling stuff. And you can find them at catholicbalm.co and enter the word Pope, P-O-P-E, at checkout for 10% off your entire order. So once more, that is catholicbalm.co and the word Pope at checkout. Today's episode is a very special one indeed. Our Pope today needs no introduction, being one of the finest men to ever grace the chair of St. Peter. But he does need a long episode to tell the whole tale of his long and eventful life. October 22nd, the day that this episode is being released, is the man's feast day, so raise a glass, or a pierogi, for one of the greatest of all pontiffs. This week, it's a Popecast supercut on Pope St. John Paul II. Now, a quick bit of backstory before we get into it. In the before times, pre-COVID, we had planned to do a three-part series on the great St. John Paul II, and we did end up doing so, but unfortunately, the timing of those three episodes landed a bit awkwardly. So episode one of three released, then COVID hit, yours truly moved across town, and lo and behold, episodes two and three of that three-part series released, unfortunately, much later and without a whole lot of continuity at the time. So some of you might remember that, but at any rate, this supercut can serve two purposes. One grand story of the life of this great pope from start to finish, combining all three of those episodes into one and in some small way to honor him on this, his feast day, celebrating the 43rd anniversary of the inauguration of his pontificate in 1978. So, as with any good story, we start at the beginning. Carol Joseph Wojtyla was born on May 18, 1920, in the town of Wadowice in southern Poland, near the city of Krakow as the youngest of three children born to Carol and Amelia Wojtyla. Jason Everett, in his excellent book, St. John Paul the Great, His Five Loves, recounts the story of his birth, quote, On the evening of May 18, 1920, parishioners of the Church of the Presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary gathered to sing evening prayer. Across the street, 36-year-old Amelia Wojtyla was in labor at home and noticed the sound of hymns in honor of the Virgin Mary emanating from the church. She asked the midwife to open the window in order for the songs to be heard. Amidst the sacred music, she delivered a son, Carol Joseph. Sadly, suffering would become something the Wojtyla's dealt with more than most families, even in wartime. Carol's sister Olga died in infancy before he was even born, six years prior. When he was just eight, before he had received his first Holy Communion, Carol lost his mother to kidney failure and other complications, and barely three years later, Edmund a physician who Carol affectionately called Moondeck, his beloved brother, would die of scarlet fever after contracting it from the patients he was caring for. The death of Edmund, John Paul would recount in later years, almost affected him more than it did his mother's death, given the few additional years of maturity between the two. His papal biographers wrote of their relationship, quote, The two of them could be seen dribbling a soccer ball between them through the streets of the town in the summer or he would carry Lolek, Carol's nickname, on his shoulders through the fields by the Skava River. He took Carol on his first long hikes in the mountains, sharing his passion for nature and outdoor exercise. He taught him to ski. For Lolek, Mundek, Edmund, was a refuge from depression. End quote. So from age 11 on, it was just Carol and his father. 
to deal with their profound grief and the physical emptiness of their apartment. As Jason Everett recounts, quote, the two pushed their beds together and slept in the same room. Every morning, the two attended Mass before school and again prayed together in the evening, often reading the Bible. End quote. John Paul would later say this about Carol Sr. My father's words played a very important role because they directed me towards becoming a true worshiper of God. And then another time he said, quote, After my mother's death and later the death of my older brother, I was left alone with my father, a deeply religious man. Day after day, I was able to observe the austere way in which he lived. His example was, in a way, my first seminary, a kind of domestic seminary, end quote. No pressure for us dads or anything. Now, Carol was called Lolek by his friends, as I mentioned, considering that Carol was Polish for Charles, Lolek was the Polish equivalent of the nickname Chuck. His early loves as a boy mostly involved soccer and spending time with his friends, in addition to serving daily mass at his nearby parish. Wadowice was at least one-third Jewish, and though anti-Semite sentiment was popular in Poland at the time, Carol was unbothered, having been taught well by his father. In fact, when soccer matches were often divided into Jewish and Catholic teams, when the former was in need of an extra man, he would happily volunteer to play goalkeeper for the Jewish squad. Carol Sr. could see plainly that his son was bright, having excelled in elementary school and graduating top of his class in high school, so the pair ended up moving to Krakow and living with Amelia's two sisters in 1938, when Carol was 18, in order for him to study and attend the famed Jagiellonian University. He went on to study languages and Polish literature, and ended up apparently learning as many as 12 languages, along with several lesser-known dialects. He was fluent in nine languages by the time he became Pope. Uh, among those, Polish, of course, naturally, Latin, Ancient Greek, Italian, French, German, English, Spanish, and Portuguese. It was also during this time that Carol took up an interest in theater and poetry, hobbies that would become unimaginably important for the preservation of Polish culture barely a year after his move to Krakow. It was then that the Germans invaded Poland in 1939, and in the years afterwards, that he and his friends would form the underground Rhapsodic Theater, a group that sought to keep Polish culture and folklore alive through those dark days. The Nazi occupation caused thousands of Poles to flee east from Krakow, often taking cover in ditches to avoid fire from German airplanes, only to have to turn around after walking up to 120 miles to avoid encountering the Soviets, who had invaded Poland from the east barely two weeks later. The Jagiellonian University was promptly suppressed by the Germans, along with most every other aspect of normal life in Krakow. But around that time, Carol met his spiritual mentor and longtime friend Jan Tiranowski, a layman who introduced the future pope to Carmelite spirituality, specifically the works of St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila. Tiranowski was a tailor who had himself experienced a profound conversion one day at Mass when the priest reminded everyone present that sainthood, holiness, was not just for priests and nuns, but a calling for every person. His witness was no small matter to John Paul. In fact, a priest and seminary friend of his later credited both of their vocations to Tiranovsky, saying, quote, I can safely say that if it wasn't for him, neither Wojtyla nor I would have become priests. End quote. During the same time, the Germans required all able-bodied men to work hard labor, so Carroll worked at a rock quarry two miles from home in order to support he and his father. Though it was hard labor, in the bitter Polish winters, Lolek would actually coat his face in petroleum jelly to avoid frostbite on the two-mile track to and from work. Poles looked out for one another still, and ensured that the students among them were taken better care of. On February 18, 1941, Carroll returned from the quarry and entered his father's room to bring him his medicine. 
but noticed he was laying in a strange posture. Upon trying to lift Carol Sr., he realized that his father had died, leaving him an orphan at just 20 years old. Carol wept bitterly as he held his lifeless body. The family that Carol moved in with noted the growing intensity of his prayer life amidst the grief, saying, quote, he went to Mass every day, he prayed a lot in his room, and he lay prostrate, end quote. Another source of solace for him came as, as a result of a new job at a chemical plant in 1942. His new factory was just a few hundred yards from the grave of one sister Maria Faustina Kowalska, better known to us now as Saint Faustina, the visionary and mystic who gave the world the message of divine mercy. Carol would visit the grave often, having developed a devotion to her as her message spread and grew in popularity. Considering his sharing of divine mercy with the whole world a special task given to him by God, he would say to a friend decades later at a banquet following her canonization, quote, This is the happiest day of my life. End quote. Two years later, in 1944, Lolek nearly died after being hit by a German truck while walking home from work. Inexplicably, the Germans actually stopped and cared for the unconscious young man, arranging for him to be taken to the hospital where he was forced to stay for two weeks recovering from numerous cuts, a shoulder wound, and a severe concussion. He would say later, as George Weigel wrote in his fantastic biography, Witness to Hope, that the accident and his survival was a confirmation of his priestly vocation. Not six months later, the Gestapo would sweep through Krakow as a result of the Warsaw Uprising, trying to round up and kill all young, able-bodied men to avoid a similar rebellion there. Carroll somehow managed to stay hidden beneath the basement door as the Nazi secret police raided the house he lived in. He then immediately escaped to the archbishop's residence, where he stayed until after the war, and later, as Pope John Paul reflected on the great blessing of being allowed to live. He said, Sometimes I would ask myself, so many young people of my own age are losing their lives. Why not me? Today I know that it was not mere chance. Amid the overwhelming evil of the war, everything in my own personal life was tending toward the good of my vocation. End quote. The Prince Archbishop of Krakow, the heroic and renowned Adam Sapieha, who came from a noble Lithuanian family, hence the, the prince, right? He had created a secret seminary in his own apostolic palace during those days, despite the Germans not only forbidding new candidates for the seminary, but actively rounding up and executing a full one-third of Poland's priests over the course of the war. Of course, the great St. Maximilian Kolbe being one of them. Though he was from then on effectively living under house arrest, his days of hard labor were over, and he was finally free to study in relative peace. A quick note on Archbishop Sapieha. The man who directly formed Karol Wojtyla into the priest and spiritual father we all have come to know himself lived a far more powerful witness than the words he ever spoke. From feeding the German Governor General Hans Frank a meal of stale black bread and beetroot jam to living a life rooted in deep and abiding prayer before the Blessed Sacrament, Archbishop Sapieha was the embodiment of the ages-old tradition that a bishop was the defensor civitatis, the defender of the city, of his people. George Weigel notes that from Sapieha, young Carol, quote, absorbed a heroic concept of the priesthood, end quote. In fact, long after Sapieha's death and after he had succeeded his mentor as Archbishop of Krakow, then Cardinal Wojtyla commissioned a statue of his mentor, standing in a simple cassock with hands clasped in prayer. And so Lolik resided in the archbishop's residence with several dozen brother seminarians for six months until, in mid-January 1945, the Soviets liberated Poland from the Nazi stranglehold. Jason Everett has the story. Quote, Carol was praying with the other seminarians in the chapel of the archbishop's residence when all the windows burst 
as the retreating Germans blew up a nearby bridge. Archbishop Sapieha ushered the priests and seminarians to the basement, where he continued praying the rosary with them, amid the sounds of guns and tanks. The men huddled in the dark, frozen room until after midnight, when they heard a knock at the gate. Russian soldiers were checking for Nazis and hoping to find some food and vodka in the process. The next morning, the city streets were flooded with Poles celebrating their liberation. End quote. Now, any delight around the liberation was short-lived, of course, because the Poles soon realized that they were trading one tyranny for another. But as seminary studies continued apace, and on November 1st, 1946, in the Archbishop's Chapel, surrounded by a small number of friends, Karol Wojtyla was ordained to the priesthood. He was 26 years old. John Paul II would later recount the meaning of his ordination to the priesthood, written in his vocational memoir, Gift and Mystery. Here's John Paul. The one about to receive holy orders prostrates himself completely and rests his forehead on the church floor, indicating his complete willingness to undertake the ministry being entrusted to him. That right has deeply marked my priestly life. Years later in St. Peter's Basilica, in the very beginning of the Second Vatican Council, I was thinking back on that moment of ordination to priesthood, and I wrote a poem. I would like to share a few lines of that poem here. Peter, you are the floor that others may walk over you. Not knowing where they go, you guide their steps. You want to serve their feet that pass as rock serves the hooves of sheep. The rock is a gigantic temple floor, the cross a pasture. When I wrote these words, I was thinking of Peter and of the whole reality of the ministerial priesthood and trying to bring out the profound significance of this liturgical prostration. In lying prostrate on the floor in the form of a cross before one's ordination, in accepting in one's own life, like Peter, the cross of Christ, and becoming with the apostle a floor for our brothers and sisters, one finds the ultimate meaning of all priestly spirituality. End quote. Father Carol Wojtyla had been ordained in Cardinal Adam Sapieha's private chapel on All Saints Day, 1946, again at the age of 26. He celebrated his first Mass at Vavil Cathedral, the Basilica of Saints Stanislaus and Wenceslas in Krakow, and just two weeks later was shipped off to Rome to study philosophy and moral theology for two years at the Angelicum, where he was under the tutelage of the famed French-Dominican Father Reginald Garrigou Lagrange. It was during this time that the young Father Carroll visited San Giovanni Rotundo in order to retreat and to be in the company of one Saint Padre Pio, the humble friar who bore the stigmata, the wounds of Christ. It was discovered later that Padre Pio confided in the future Pope not that he would one day become Vicar of Christ, as many have assumed, but rather that his most excruciating wound that he bore, that being Padre Pio, was that on his shoulder, which had never been cured or treated. It was a detail that Padre Pio apparently only shared with the young Polish priest, for reasons we may never know this side of eternity. Anyways, after completing his 280-page dissertation on St. John of the Cross in Latin, BT dubs, Father Carroll returned from Rome and was assigned to the small country parish of the Assumption in Niagovich, 15 miles outside of Krakow, where he promptly knelt and kissed the ground, a move he learned from reading the life of St. John Vianney, patron of priests, and something, as a matter of fact, he would repeat through his life as a priest and even as pope. The entire town lacked basic amenities like electricity, a sewer system, or running water, but Father Carroll seemed not to mind. He was faithfully dedicated to both his people and to the Lord, spending many nights lying prostrate in front of the Blessed Sacrament. 
His parishioners often actually spied on him, apparently inspired by his great devotion. He also would often trek long distances to visit his parishioners in their homes. Recounting his winter journeys in particular, John Paul later wrote, quote, But snow will cling to your cassock, then it will thaw out indoors and freeze again outside, forming a heavy bell round your legs, which gets heavier and heavier. By evening, you could hardly drag your legs, but you have to go on, because you know that people wait for you, that they wait all year long for this meeting, end quote. His efforts led the parish of the Assumption to become particularly vibrant, so much so, actually, that as would be the case for virtually his whole clerical existence in Poland, the Soviet secret police sent spies to attempt to undermine his efforts. In fact, Jason Everett writes, quote, They abducted and beat a young man who was helping to type Father Carroll's doctoral thesis because he refused to divulge information that the Soviets could use against Wojtyla's youth group. Father Carroll assured him that he didn't need to hide anything and comforted him, saying, don't worry, Stanislav. They'll finish themselves off. End quote. He was only in Niagovich eight short months before Cardinal Sapieha reassigned him to St. Florian's Parish in the heart of Krakow. During his two years at St. Florian's, Father Carroll was devoted particularly to the young people of the parish, leading retreats, preparing couples for marriage, and paying special attention to the formation of college students. Apparently, pickup games of soccer were common, as were discussions and lectures held at his house, all in service to raising up young leadership in service to the church. He was directed on to further graduate studies in 1951, which allowed him to teach at the university level. He began then teaching theology at the Jagiellonian University, his alma mater, just two years before it was shut down. Over the next few years, he also taught in Krakow's clandestine seminary as well as the University of Lublin, a few hundred kilometers away, where he eventually became the chair of the entire ethics department while still in his 30s, no less. Even amidst his academic life, however, he still made a point to connect often with the same group of young people that he came to know and love while in Niagovich and later at St. Florian's. The group, which Father Carroll had called Shrodovisko, which can be translated loosely to mean milieu or environment, took regular camping, hiking, and kayaking trips into the country around Krakow, both to enjoy God's creation, but also, as Bishop Robert Barron wrote in a 2016 essay, quote, subtly training them in Catholic philosophy theology, and spirituality. This was, to be sure, an act of subversion at a time when the government was attempting to impose a dreary atheism on the Polish people, end quote. His group called him Wujek, Polish for uncle, since it was forbidden by the communists for large religious gatherings in general, but particularly those led by a priest. So Father Carroll, and even later as Bishop Carroll, or Archbishop, and even Cardinal Wojtyla, dressed as a layman in order to conceal his identity. His words rang loudly, but so too, as one might imagine, did his witness. Jason Everett noted that Vujak would lag behind the group while hiking often in order to spend time by himself in contemplative prayer. And he quotes one of the members of the group, Kazmir Braun, who said, quote, We even had a saying, Uncle went on the mountain. Of course, he did not go on the mountain, but rather to any solitary, secluded, quiet place. He prayed the rosary in the chaplet of divine mercy. We had a feeling that he is praying all the time. End quote. Even in a time when being accompanied by a priest was forbidden, Vujek was always close to his young people, from his earliest days as a parish priest to his election as the next successor of St. Peter. Fittingly, in 1958, Father Carroll was on one of these kayaking trips, deep in the wilderness, when he was summoned to Warsaw to meet immediately with Cardinal Stefan Wyszynski, the primate of Poland. As it turned out, Archbishop Eugenius Baziak, Father Carroll's boss and the apostolic administrator of Krakow, had recommended to Pope Pius XII 
that the young priest be made an auxiliary bishop, and the Pope happily obliged. In writing about his trek to the nation's capital, John Paul would later recount, quote, So I set off, first in the canoe over the waves of the river, and then in a truck laden with sacks of flour, until I got to Olstenik. The train for Warsaw left late at night. I had brought my sleeping bag with me, thinking that I might be able to catch a few winks in the station and ask someone to wake me when it was time to board the train. There was no need for that in any event, because I didn't sleep. End quote. After initially questioning the appointment due to his young age, the Cardinal Primate of Poland urged him not to oppose the will of the Holy Father, and Wojtyla happily consented. Before rejoining his friends in the woods, Father Carroll needed to make a stop in Krakow, but was delayed several hours waiting for the train. In the interim, he visited a convent chapel whose priest was one Father Jan Zieha, who would later tell of the future Pope's stay. In the chapel, Zieha said, quote, When he did not emerge for some time, they looked in on him. He lay prostrate on the ground. The sister stepped back, filled with respect. After another while, the sister looked into the chapel again. The priest still lay prostrate, but the hour was late. The sister went up to him and shyly asked, Perhaps, Father, would you be so kind to come to supper? The stranger responded, My train to Krakow isn't until after midnight. Allow me to stay here. I have much to discuss with the Lord. Vujak eventually made it back to Krakow, notified the archbishop and his brother priest, and rejoined his friends soon after. On September 28, 1958, Karol Wojtyla was consecrated a bishop at the tomb of St. Stanislaus, in the very same cathedral in which he had served Mass while Nazi planes bombarded the city nearly 20 years earlier. Now, Bishop Wojtyla served as an auxiliary in his home diocese for seven years before being named Archbishop of the same diocese, ironically being the compromised choice of the communists. He had somehow given the government leaders the impression that he would be somehow an easier patsy for their nefarious agenda. Safe to say that was perhaps, as Everett writes, quote, the greatest miscalculation in the history of communism, end quote. Vujak would be archbishop for 13 years before being called to Rome to don the white cassock, and what eventful years they were. So dangerous was the archbishop to the Soviet cause that he had an entire unit dedicated to round-the-clock surveillance of him. Everett writes that, quote, by the time he was elected pope, the Soviets had compiled 18 cartons of reports. His phone line was tapped, his letters read, and every homily recorded with every sentence examined. The government obsessed over every detail of his life, wanting to know how often he went into the dentist, who polished his shoes, and who even purchased his underwear, end quote. The stories of, of his entire life being bugged reads rather like a spy comedy at times. It actually became well known later on that the archbishop, knowing his house was bugged, would speak very loudly to give the communists what they wanted to hear and then save his more important and clandestine conversations for his camping trips away from prying ears. At other times, though, he all but played the action hero, ditching the communist tale by swerving in and out of traffic, then dashing into another car in order to get to a secret meeting while the communist tailed his original driver as one story went. We're not making this up, actually, even. His personal secretary, now Cardinal Stanislavjevich, recalled their constant presence and John Paul's dark sense of humor, saying, quote, They were always there, always on duty, watching from the other side of Franciscanska Street. And as soon as the archbishop's car left the building, the agents would glide along behind in their sinister black vehicles. In fact, he used to wave at them, or even bless them as he was about to leave. He used to call them my guardian angels, end quote. The ultimate foil to the communists, though, was twofold. First, Vujek knew Marxism and its weak points better than they did, having studied it in great detail for decades. And second, his iron will, deep faith in God, and great 
devotion to the Blessed Mother meant he was never afraid of their sad, secular ideology and lame intimidation tactics, frankly. In fact, he apparently once quipped to a White House correspondent that, quote, the career of every person on earth began in a diaper, even though today he may be wearing the uniform of a military general or the ribbons of an ambassador, and his career will probably come to an end again in a diaper, except perhaps a slightly larger one, end quote. When the government wouldn't let him build the churches he needed, he would travel to the parish himself and celebrate Mass on an empty lot, often in poor weather, to make the government look like whiny children. When the communists confiscated the historic national icon of the patroness of Poland, or Lady of Czestochowa, he led the national procession with an empty frame. And when Pope Paul VI was denied a travel visa to attend the 1,000th anniversary celebration of Poland, to end the procession at the shrine of Czestochowa's Cardinal Wojtyła, as Everett details, quote, placed an empty throne adjacent to the altar as a reminder to the faithful of the government's denial of religious freedom, end quote. In 1967, Pope St. Paul VI gave Wojciech a nice red hat, elevating him to the College of Cardinals at the tender age of 47. That same year, Cardinal Wojtyła would play a vital role in formulating the landmark encyclical Humanae Vitae, which upheld the Catholic Church's stance of not permitting the use of artificial contraceptives and, by the way, a very short and worthwhile read if you haven't heard of it or checked it out before. Now, it wasn't Wojtyla's first dalliance in Rome as a contributor to Vatican affairs, of course. As a brand new bishop, he had participated in the Second Vatican Council earlier that decade, where he was primarily a contributor to the document Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution in the church in the modern world. In the early 1970s, Pope Paul VI summoned Cardinal Wojtyla back to Rome to preach a retreat to the Pope and his papal household. No easy task, admittedly. But the cardinal apparently shut himself in a convent in order to focus, but his daily schedule involved writing in the morning and in the evening, but retiring to the ski slopes during the afternoons. Though his whole life embodied living a virtue of material poverty, his one luxury item was a set of fine headbrand skis. This apparently bothered some people around him, who asked at one point if he thought it unbecoming for a cardinal to ski. And John Paul replied bluntly, quote, it is unbecoming for a cardinal to ski badly, end quote. At any rate, that retreat he preached was eventually published as a book under the title of A Sign of Contradiction. In 1978, Cardinal Wojtyla would travel to Rome to mark the death of a pope, an election of the new successor of St. Peter. It was August, and the pope, of course, was Paul VI. Though he's thought to have received a few votes on the second of the four ballots, the choice of the gathered cardinals ended up being one Albino Luciani, the Cardinal Patriarch of Venice, who took the name John Paul I to honor the two previous pontiffs. Of course, we just covered John Paul I uh, a few episodes ago. And it, of course, was the first instance of a pope taking not one, but two regnal names upon his election. Interestingly enough, he also insisted on being called John Paul I, of course, Pope Francis doesn't go by Francis I, so it's a little bit peculiar that he, instead of just simply being Pope John Paul, he said, Pope John Paul I, please call me that. Apparently, John Paul I had an eerily prophetic awareness that he wouldn't be around for long, saying when pressed that, quote, my name is John Paul I, I will be here only a short time. The second is coming, end quote. Ooh. As if that weren't enough, though, a few days prior to his death, John Paul I said to his Secretary of State, quote, Another man better than I could have been chosen. Paul VI already pointed out his successor. He was sitting just in front of me in the Sistine Chapel. He will come because I will go. End quote. Jason Everett also notes then that it was Cardinal Wojtyla who was sitting in the very seat 
that John Paul I referenced, and goes on to mention a rumor that JP I had made a visit to Sister Lucia, one of the Fatima visionaries, the year prior, 1977, while he was still Patriarch of Venice. Perhaps it was there that he was given the prophecy that, quote, he would reign briefly as Pope and would be followed by the Cardinal of Krakow, end quote. But, I mean, we'll likely never know for sure, but pious legends are always fun to think about, right? In any case, surely enough, his papacy would be among the shortest in history. Cardinal Wojtyla had barely returned home when he heard the news at breakfast that the new pope had already died. It said that he dropped his utensil, was overcome with emotion, and immediately developed a migraine headache before retreating to his chapel for many hours, lying prostrate on the floor. And when leaving for the Eternal City once more, his driver bade him farewell and wished for a safe journey back to Poland once the conclave was all over. Cordovoitiwa turned and responded soberly, One never knows. This final segment, as you might imagine, will be an attempt to touch on the highlights of his landmark papacy and the legacy he's left in the 16 short years since his 2005 death. I say an attempt because, gosh, there's probably literally hundreds of different angles one might take for a papal bio like this. It's, I mean, it's straightforward enough to tell the story of a pope's early life, even one like John Paul II, but to tell the story of this man's papacy is quite another thing entirely if nothing else, because we're still more or less living with his presence in the church ever before our eyes. From a historical standpoint, history is still unfolding. But nevertheless, we'll give the old college try and do as best we can to reveal just what kind of gift this man gave to the church and was to the church. So where we last left off, Cardinal Carol Wojtyla was being dropped off at the Krakow airport after receiving the stunning news of Pope John Paul I's untimely death, just 33 days into his pontificate. It was October 1978, and this was about to become just the 12th year of three popes in the history of the papacy, and the first in nearly four centuries, those rare years where three men sit in the chair of Peter over the course of one calendar year. And as a quick aside for any stat buffs out there, papal nerds, uh, like I'm sure you all are, there was actually even one year of four popes in 1296, fun fact, where the subject of Popecast episode number two Blessed Gregory X died, Innocent V lasted for six months, Adrian V lasted for barely one month, and then John XXI took over that September. Can you imagine something like that happening today? Anyways, I digress. So as the Cardinals gathered in conclave in October 1978 for the second time in as many months, the first day of voting went by without much fanfare. Two Italian Cardinals were reportedly deadlocked, as per usual, but on day two, things began to shift and votes for the young Polish cardinal began to stack up. One cardinal said later, quote, When the number of votes for him approached one half of what was needed, he cast away his pencil and sat up straight. He was red in the face. Then he was holding his head in his hands. End quote. On October 16th, enough votes were cast to elect Cardinal Carol Wojtyla as the 262nd man to sit in the chair of Peter. Now, for those keeping score at home, remember, Benedict IX was actually Pope three different times. So while John Paul was Pope number 264, he was man number 262. But at any rate, he chose as his name John Paul II, both to honor his predecessor and some might say fulfill his prophecy that another John Paul would follow, but also to give a nod to both John XXIII and Paul VI, given his work at the Second Vatican Council and how its works would deeply influence his own papacy for nearly three decades hence. He was the first non-Italian cardinal in 455 years to be elected pope, the last being the Dutch Adrian VI in 1522. 
As one might imagine, the Polish people went nuts. Church bells rang throughout the nation, apparently. People reportedly flooded into the streets in rejoicing. And most importantly, the Soviet government was left wringing its hands and shaking its fists, wondering how they could have let a man like that even become a cardinal, let alone become pope. Their efforts to limit his image and any news of him in the media only showed their pettiness and desperation. Soon after his election, John Paul II traveled to Mexico. It was the first of his 104 apostolic journeys to 129 different countries. But in order to accept the trip that was offered by pilgrims to John Paul I, and to visit the shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe, in which resides the miraculous 500-year-old image given to St. Juan Diego. Jason Everett uh, quotes American Cardinal Justin Regali about that trip. Quote, it was there at the shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe, at the feet of the Blessed Mother, that he understood what God was asking him to do, which was to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He understood that it was to be a very significant part of his pontificate traveling around the world to proclaim Jesus Christ. End quote. Now, though that was his first papal trip, it was his second, a trip to Poland the next year, that would end up changing the course of history forever. Now known as the nine days that changed the world, John Paul II was reluctantly allowed back into his homeland, despite the communists doing everything in their power to prevent it. His hope was to visit for two days in May to commemorate the 900th anniversary of the martyrdom of St. Stanislaus, patron of Poland, at the hands of a corrupt Polish king. But... The optics, no surprise there, were no good for the Soviets, as one might imagine. So the communists said no to that. But as a compromise, he was offered nine days in June to travel to six different cities. Though the visit was monumental throughout, drawing millions of elated Poles out to see him in person, the apex of the trip was a mass in Warsaw's Victory Square on June 2nd, 1979. 300,000 people gathered, and his homily was interrupted several times with ovations from the crowd, one of which lasted 14 minutes, and all of which heard chants of, We want God. We want God. The communists, to say the least, were wrong when they hoped that by being made pope that John Paul II would turn his attentions to other nations and issues. In his homily from the platform in Victory Square, he thundered, Quote, Christ cannot be kept out of the history of man in any part of the globe, at any longitude or latitude of geography. End quote. And right then, the crowd broke out in song, chanting the Christus Vincit, Latin for Christ conquers. John Paul slowly lifted his head, a wide smile on his face, and his hands raised to heaven. As I suspect he knew then, it was the beginning of the end for the Soviet oppressors, and his people would soon be free. I mean, what a way to start his reign as successor of St. Peter. There were still 26 more years to go in this great man's reign as universal pastor of the Catholic Church. In writing about how prolific John Paul II was in just about every area of his life as Pope, Everett notes that, quote, his life was an expression of his conviction that a priest ought to be, I'm quoting John Paul now, a generous and tireless evangelizer, end quote. I mentioned at the outset that he's been the most traveled pope ever, making, a, making it a priority to see and touch as many of his people as possible. Remember, a priest or bishop aren't just the shepherd of the Catholic souls in their realm, but all the souls in their territory. Across his trips to Ireland and America later in 1979, as one example, a journalist wrote, quote, He had traveled 10,000 miles in nine days, seen 10 million people, slept an average of four and a half hours a night, and delivered 72 discourses. End quote. He was full of energy, and as we said before, had an iron will long into the years when most people are thinking of starting to kick back. 
When asked about the rigor of his daily life, and when he ever got some free time, he quipped, quote, all my time is free. In fact, those who managed his travel schedule, along with the people he met in his travels, knew well that the Pope was never in a rush. A priest who assisted him once said, quote, to him, the value of the present person always outweighed the value of where we were going because we'd get there eventually, end quote. There are countless examples, but one in particular was from that of a Swiss guard, the Pope's security detail, who was working the night shift on Christmas Eve in 1986. Everett recounts the story in his book. A Swiss guard named Andreas Widmer was standing at his post when John Paul exited 20 feet away on his way to the Midnight Mass. The Holy Father didn't recognize the young man and called out, You're new. What's your name? The Pope approached him, noticed his reddened eyes, and immediately perceived what was happening. This is your first Christmas away from home, isn't it? The guard recalled, I replied in the affirmative, barely holding back tears as I answered. Yet again, he stepped closer, pausing just inches from me this time. Taking my hand with one hand and holding my elbow with the other, he pulled me slightly toward him, looking at me with his deep gray eyes, and said, Andreas, I want to thank you for the sacrifice you're making for the church. I will pray for you during Mass this evening. To John Paul, the person who is working is always more important than the work the person is doing. End quote. John Paul believed a great deal in giving the faithful good and holy examples of what Vatican II dubbed the, quote, universal call to holiness, the reality that not just priests and nuns, but every human person is called to a virtuous and upright life, lived in service to God and neighbor to ultimately make it to heaven. As a result, he canonized 482 saints and declared 1,338 more to be blessed, the step just before canonization. For context of just how many that was, all of the previous popes before him, following the formalization of the road to sainthood into a more rigorous process in 1588, had canonized only 302. And I want to add something here, too. Some have dubbed this a saint factory, as though John Paul was somehow cheapening the canonization process or creating too many saints. And I don't buy that for a second. Not only is it frankly a bit insulting <laughs> to the witness of those holy men and women and to John Paul himself, but it seems the Pope was simply putting a sort of incarnational marker on the words of St. Paul in chapter 5 of his letter to the Romans, that, quote, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Lest we forget, the 20th century was literally the bloodiest on record and produced more Christian martyrs than ever before to boot. And John Paul had a front row seat to much of it. So why wouldn't God give us more saints in that same span of time than ever before? But anyways, John Paul was also a tireless defender of the dignity of the human person and a zealous pursuer of souls. This rung out in his impassioned addresses to the United Nations in 1979 and 1995, his many writings and speeches on the sanctity of life from conception to natural death, as well as on the rights of workers and citizens to be granted dignity by their employers and governments. Both were close to his Polish heart. His mother's doctor, in fact, had encouraged her to abort him due to her health complications and the horrific working conditions in Poland for virtually the entirety of his life was surely never far from his mind. He had many seemingly superhuman gifts, one of which was the ability of a sort of multiplied concentration. He literally could be reading one book and have someone be reading another book aloud to him and absorb both. He also had an impeccable memory. John Paul apparently had every diocese and bishop's name in the entire world committed to memory, and he literally never forgot a face. One story, I believe it was a, a former American bishop, in fact, was venturing to Rome for his ad limina visit. So every five years, five to seven years, uh, bishops go to visit the Pope. And uh, the bishop said, nice to meet you, to John Paul upon arriving. But the Pope said, this is not the first time we've met. 
The bishop was apparently pretty sure of himself and insisted, no, I don't, I don't believe we have, even after JP2 pressed him once more. Now, John Paul ended up leaving it aside and went on with the conversation, but after having left the Pope's office later on, his secretary stopped him in the hall and said, if the Holy Father says he remembers you, then he definitely remembers you. He said it was 1962, on the steps of the Church of the Jesu in Rome, when you were a seminarian. And lo and behold, the bishop, though he hadn't thought about that day in decades, indeed remembered, randomly meeting a young bishop from Poland that day. As far as monumental moments in the life of his papacy, chief among them is an attempt that was made on John Paul II's life in 1981, as he was greeting pilgrims in St. Peter's Square. The assassin fired four shots from point-blank range two of which hit him, and which almost certainly should have killed John Paul instantly. But as the Pope attributed during his recovery, a mother's hand guided the bullet path, saving his life. Interestingly enough, the date of the attempt, May 13th, was none other than the anniversary of the Virgin Mary's apparition to the shepherd children in Fatima, Portugal in 1917, and the coincidence was not lost on him. Doctors, upon doing surgery on the Pope's wounds, found that the bullet missed his aortic valve by mere millimeters. One year later, on the anniversary of the attempt, John Paul II made a pastoral visit to the Fatima Shrine in Portugal, giving thanks to the Virgin Mary for sparing his life. He even went so far as to place the bullet from the attack in the statue of Mary's crown, where it remains to this day. He created and presided over several World Youth Days, a biannual global event of young people, which are consistently among the largest gatherings of human beings in history, I guess not counting probably the Chicago Cubs World Series celebration, but that's beside the point. Uh, the 1995 World Youth Day in Manila actually attracted an estimated 5 to 7 million pilgrims, which remains the largest papal gathering ever, according to the Vatican. John Paul II remained active throughout the 1980s, despite the assassination attempts but the 1990s weren't so kind to him. He was in his 70s by then and suffered through a series of ailments that progressively slowed him down. A benign tumor in 1992, falls in 93 and 94, which produced a dislocated shoulder and broken femur, respectively, and then an appendectomy in 1996. By 2001, John Paul was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, but still traveled extensively, mainly being shuttled around instead of walking. About the flu in early 2005 ushered in the Pope's final days and sadly took away his powerful speaking voice for the remaining two months of his life. John Paul II died on April 2, 2005, at the age of 84, having slipped into a coma several hours earlier after saying in Polish to his secretary, Let me depart to my father's house. It was Divine Mercy Sunday, a fitting date given the work he had done to promote the message of Divine Mercy, the visions of Jesus recounted by the Polish nun St. Faustina, describing the immense mercy that resides in the heart of God for any person who seeks it. Pope Benedict himself, in his recent letter commemorating the 100th anniversary of John Paul's birth from last year, noted that this was his greatest gift to the church and the world, that through the mystery of salvation, through Jesus Christ taking on our sins, being crucified and then conquering death in the resurrection, quote, God's mercy is intended for every individual, end quote. His funeral is said to have set records for not just attendance, but also for attendance by world leaders and other dignitaries. Four kings, five queens, and over 70 presidents and prime ministers were in attendance, not to mention over a dozen leaders of other religions as well. Four million faithful gathered in and around Vatican City to mourn the loss of perhaps the greatest and most influential human being of the 20th century. As I mentioned at the outset, John Paul's legacy is still in many ways being played out, and yet the fruit of his work is everywhere in the church today. 
his intense devotion to Mary, to the Blessed Sacrament, to young people, to a Catholicism that is smart and not one that is simply blindly following the movements of the generations before us. All have resulted in a new springtime for the church in the places that have been willing to set their egos aside to not just do things as they've always been done, to put the church on mission instead of staying in maintenance mode, managing its decline. You'd be hard-pressed to find a large Catholic family today who doesn't have a John Paul in the bunch. And if you want to know what John Paul II was about, even out of all the volumes and volumes that he wrote and spoke, I think it's something like 26 feet of shelf it could fill up, one needs to look no further than the very first homily he gave as Bishop of Rome, exactly 43 years ago today, as we're releasing this. And it's here that we close this supercut episode on a true Pope's Pope. In preaching to a world in the midst of an identity crisis, to a church still on the heels of a council that had been hijacked by men seeking to make the church in their own image, to a people wondering what might come from this Pope from a, quote, faraway country, to quote his words as he appeared on the loggia for the first time, John Paul reminded his people where their help comes from. And as he preached, quote, The absolute and yet sweet and gentle power of the Lord responds to the whole depths of the human person, to his loftiest aspirations of intellect, will, and heart. It does not speak the language of force, but expresses itself in charity and truth. The new successor of Peter in the Sea of Rome today makes a fervent, humble, and trusting prayer. Christ, make me become and remain the servant of your unique power the servant of your sweet power, the servant of your power that knows no eventide. Make me be a servant, indeed the servant of your servants. Brothers and sisters, do not be afraid to welcome Christ and accept his power. Help the Pope and all those who wish to serve Christ and with Christ's power to serve the human person and the whole of mankind. Do not be afraid. Open wide the doors for Christ. To his saving power, open the boundaries of states, economic and political systems, the vast fields of culture, civilization, and development. Do not be afraid. Christ knows what is in man. He alone knows it. So often today, man does not know what is within him, in the depths of his mind and heart. So often he is uncertain about the meaning of his life on this earth. He is assailed by doubt, a doubt which turns into despair. We ask you, therefore, we beg you with humility and trust, let Christ speak to man. He alone has the words of life, yes, of eternal life. End quote. Well, that's it for this Popecast supercut on Pope St. John Paul II. I think this is probably easily the longest episode we've done that's not had a guest on it. So uh, we hope you stuck around. We hope you really enjoyed it, especially if you're a new listener. This is a great one to start with. Um, please, if you haven't already, though, leave us a rating and review over at iTunes. Thanks to all who have done that so far. Uh, and also a thank you to all of our patrons. So uh, patreon.com slash the Popecast. Um, without all of our patrons, we, we couldn't do none of this, right? The Popecast will always be free to listen to. But if you'd like to join the community, help us cover our costs and uh, ensure we can continue producing the show long into the future. Um, yeah, again, visit the uh, patreon.com slash the Popecast. And as we head out today, let us pray for the intercession of Pope St. John Paul II that we might be a balm and a peace to our broken world, that we can love our neighbors in charity and truth. And above all, that we'll remember that although these are strange times we live in, they are no stranger than in ages past. Until next time.